Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. This podcast is for you if you have an insane drive to find the truth of things. It's not the good answers that we seek, but the good questions. I interview a range of different guests from many different fields, all with the intention to uncover the simple truths that are hidden in plain sight. Most people don't want to go there. I go there. My guests go there, and you benefit. Please let me know if you enjoy these episodes, and as always, subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to the podcast. Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. My guest today is Soledad D'Agostino. In her latest role at Google, she spearheaded the global marketing for Google Pixel Fold, Google's first foldable, and has 15 years of marketing and product development experience in the tech industry, spanning across Google, YouTube, and Microsoft. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you, Stuart. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, excited to talk uh, about product marketing, excited to talk about AI. Uh, we can talk about Buenos Aires because I'm currently in Buenos Aires right now. Uh, we can talk a lot. Oh, about- we can talk about Buenos Aires all day long. <laughs> yeah, let's get into that. How how did you find yourself at Google from Argentina, from Buenos Aires? So I was hired in 2011. That seems like a lifetime ago to do Google ads at the time. They were starting their Google Ads team to basically teach companies and brands how to build their businesses online. Seems crazy to think that we're now in the AI uh, frontier, but at the time we were at the internet frontier. And that's when I came on board and my role was basically a bit of consulting with brands for them to understand like what online online marketing could do for them and e-commerce and all that jazz, which seems so old now, but... At the time, it was such a novel thing, and brands were very wary about whether it would work or not. So my first role was with Google Ads, but then shortly after, I think a year after, I was able to talk to someone in the U.S. at YouTube to convince them to hire their first Spanish-speaking Latin America employee to work with brands also, and like in, a, in the same light to teach brands how to do YouTube content in their channels and convince them that having them as a repository of TV ads was a bit of a missed opportunity. And then the rest is history. I was at YouTube for nine years after that. Hmm. And so I just looked it up. Uh, YouTube was started in 2005 and you see you started acquired. It. Oh, it was, okay. Yeah. So it was acquired in 2005. And, and then, so you started there in 2011, you said? Yeah, I was at YouTube. Yeah, actually, YouTube was 2012. I was at Google in 2011 and then transitioned within Google to YouTube. But at the time when it was acquired uh, in the US, Latin America was not there yet in terms of like they they hadn't developed a brand team within uh, Latin America. That's what I was hired to do, if you will. Interesting. And so you saw the whole evolution of YouTube within a Latin America and you helped them to get it off of the ground specifically with Latin American um, brands or brands all over the world? Yeah, that's a great question. So I started with Latin American brands, but shortly after I was moved, um, (laughs) I say I was moved because it was pretty much half my choice, half like my director's choice at the time. She wanted me to work out of New York because it was a bigger market for YouTube. And I I started in Latin America, but shortly after the role evolved into live stream support. And that became, I launched a few big live streams for Argentina and Mexico. And then shortly after I moved to New York to do it from New York. And that's where I spent, I would say like the biggest chunk of my YouTube career because I was doing live streams out of New York, all the fit 
the, the big fat concerts <laughs> that they do that they like stream Coachella, Lollapalooza. We all have like brand partnerships and brand sponsorships there that are created by YouTube and they invite brands to sponsor these big concerts in the platform. And that's what my team was doing. So we had many very successful live streams and it, it became this big thing where it, it would entail a big advertising budgets that would promote and build audience ahead of time for the live stream to happen at a certain date and a certain time. And we gathered a lot of users around it and then big watch time. We did the first 360 live stream on YouTube with Coachella, which was massive success as well. We used to embed live streams in mastheads and other ad formats to even like driving more traffic. So yeah, so it was actually a very cool role. I would get to go to backstages and things like that. All the fun, the fun things that you do with concerts. I must admit, I have a bit of a PTSD from concerts as a result because live streams are so stressful. It's like a producer job. You want, you pray that you never get a black screen. But other than that, it was a very enjoyable experience. We had so much fun with the team um, and got to do very cool stuff. Mm. Yeah, there's a lot of different questions we could go into. Like one is the rise of Twitch and so live streaming and then this new kind of entrant into the market with just like pure live streaming forever, not just not... Mm -hmm one specific time yeah and then yeah i think oh sorry I, I didn't mean to interrupt you no, no, let's go on to that one that sounded interesting so yeah like twitch arose and, and had these like long live streams that people would just you know gamers would just like just live stream their entire three-hour session and stuff like that but then youtube was already there youtube was already in terms of live streaming and it didn't really seem like twitch was anything special but then all of a sudden it just blew up and and, and came out of nowhere i'd love to hear about what that was like actually what was what was interesting there is that there were different use cases, right? Because for us, Twitch was more of a, there was a lot of gaming there. And like we did, they, they streamed, they streamed all sorts of things like concerts, which was, or, or big events like these were like tentpole, we called them like tentpole events. And they seemed a little bit more of a different use case versus like general streaming. We also had some things at YouTube that were fun. Sometimes people would put cameras on pet shops and have the live stream of like little kittens like on the platform. But it was a different kind of audience when a brand got involved because brands wanted to make a big deal out of it. They hire production teams to make it very like polished and white glove type of support. In fact, in, internally at Google, there were two different teams supporting each one of the two. Like the kind of like gaming type of live stream was a different, different type of use case and was supported by a different team. That's why I make a distinction between brand and creators, because within the platform, those teams were quite different from each other. And even within YouTube, that kind of rep was replicated in terms of support. We had a team for brands and a team for creators. And obviously, we worked together and we talked to each other. It's not that we were building like different, but like differently. But I do think that the feature requests or like the things that we would bring internally to our product teams to build responded to the different use cases that were particular to each one of these type of creators. So like brands were creators in their own right and create and, and also like creators were creators in their own right and needed different things. And we try to keep them happy by building features that would respond to both. So I think to, to your point on Twitch, it's like Twitch would some somewhat, and I'm sure this has changed over the years, but tentpole events, we were pretty much like the only ones doing it as big as we did until Facebook got into live. So that's, that's when we started, let's say, to compete head to head and tentpole. And by the way, I just remembered this, but like the acquisition of YouTube was actually 2006. Wow. I think you meant like it was created in 2005, 2006 yeah. when, was when Google acquired it. 
found, founded in 2005, acquired by Google in 2006. Correct. Uh, joined YouTube in 2012. And the reason why I brought that up is like that we're sitting on this precipice of a whole new internet, basically, or a whole new kind of step function in what the internet does with the rep- representation mm-hmm. of AI. And so I've been, I grew up in Silicon Valley. I I'm, was, you know, all the people that I grew up with, they're all investors or CEOs and all part of this very like strong uh, community that didn't really exist before, probably really didn't exist before 1960. In the 1980s, that's when the personal computing industry started and really took off in Silicon Valley. And so I, as a kid, I've been paying attention to it for a long time. I made my first investment in Webvan in, in 1997 and lost all my lunch money, literally <laughs> lost all my lunch money. on Webvan. Uh, as, but, as many others did. Yeah. yeah. And, and then that was the first dot-com bubble that I experienced and just as a 17-year-old. And then, then after that, Google, I believe was like 1996, 1997, but they were really small then they didn't really get until 2000, I believe. And then, and then YouTube and then all these kind of like web 1.0, web 2.0. And now we're sitting here and just this new entrant into the field is just like wildly disrupting what we think is possible. And maybe both of us, I don't know, we could, I could ask you about it. How has it, how have you been using AI? How have you been using ChatGPT? What are your main use use cases? That's so fun. To me, it's crazy because I always, when all this started, I'd say it's, it's fair to say that the AI came to the forefront more than it appeared two years ago. But I think AI, um, especially at Google, I felt AI was in everything we did. It's just that it was hidden, right? It was behind the scenes. It was like invisible. Uh, Whereas like now we are bringing it to the forefront, like revealing that it had been there in the works for a while. And like now you can interact with, interface directly with these machine learning models through BARD or, or ChatGPT. I think for me, I started saying this, I think we are in the brink of a new revolution in terms of like level industrial revolution of what the businesses that we know will look like in the next 10 years and I, or five years even. I don't even think it will take that long. But for me, the main like the main question or the reason why it's I feel like it's it's above it's like a I would say it's a boundary like that. It's like there in the horizon. But the the reason why people are treading carefully is because of all these people like Elon Musk or like other people calling out like what this could look like if it turned into a dystopia like this, like there's this like obviously movies had an influence in this, like the Terminator movie and things like this, like giving us this like dystopias of like robots killing us all and AI like being a, a thing that we don't want to like play with kind of like fire. It's a bit of that. It's like the discovery of fire. What's the, is it the Greek Ptolemaeus that discovered fire? Ptolemaeus? I want to say that it's, that there's a myth about this and it's the same thing. We're creating this thing that could turn into a threat if we don't know how to use it properly. And I think man has been burnt enough with other things like nuclear energy and things like that. We have to be careful about what we do with it. However, all of this said, I personally, I'm an optimist and I think that I think AI I can bring so many incredible things to the to humanity. We have so many big problems like the climate crisis and other things like that, that with, uh, and even like health and like access to food, like all these things, if we are smart about using AI to help us solve these problems, like we might have the solution for these problems in, in, in a shorter time than we would do if we didn't have that tool. Personally, I'm a big fan of MidJourney. I've been playing around with, I love generative AI and like image generation in particular, like I'm a big fan of it. And I've been, I've always been a creative person and I love art and I draw and sketch and I see things like mid journey as a more advanced paintbrush, if you will. And, and I, I love that idea. 
I think that I guess like the question is when we come to things like singularity and like singularity meaning like instead of a paintbrush or a more advanced paintbrush should we create an artist that can be an artist in its own right that's where I think people get more kind of like nervous because they don't know what that means and what that could bring but I'm an optimist I think like we are we still have a few years and I think it everything is a bit stalled because of these flags that people who are very high up in the AI world are raising of let's like let's do this carefully and let's do it let's do it mindfully so we don't get into a dystopia um, which I think is fair like it's definitely we need to allow for time for law and legislation to be on par with what we're building and that is in general that is usually a very difficult thing because the legislation and all these things move slower than technology and even in the internet revolution it was a bit the same where some things were not regulated what happens if there's a leak and private pictures leak on online who has the right to call the content to recall the content and it's the same thing except with ai the stakes are much higher and so i think that it's a prudent thing to tread carefully but i also believe that a lot of positive things can come from this revolution and i hope humanity steps up and owns it in the right way. Yeah. And again, there's many different ways we could take this from here. The, <laughs> you said about the singularity and like creating a whole new person and like what that means that then most people are scared of that because it's something that they don't really know how to integrate inside their consciousness. And totally. you, you've seen the rise of YouTube and particularly in, in terms of copyright, I know that YouTube face, I, I forget the actual, the, the regulation that we we're talking about, but there is some regulation that I now forget, which was user generated content that yes. somehow made, made YouTube capable. Do you remember what that was or do you, were you there when it happened or were you there after? Oh, very much. I mean, there's a, so YouTube regulates this very tightly and they actually have something called content ID that was created to prevent copyright infringement. And it was one of the, in my opinion, one of the best technologies that they have owned and created. Content ID basically works to scan uploaded content to make sure that you're not, you're not using anything that it doesn't belong to you when you create content. And so it's like a bit of a AI, if you will, or it's like an automated system to to prevent copyright infringement. And we take it very seriously at YouTube. I, I shouldn't say we anymore. I left Google three months ago proactively. It takes it very seriously and they're very diligent in making sure that this does not happen. But yeah, they got burnt. That's how that's how that started. When you create when you give a microphone to a massive audience and you let them do whatever they want with it, that has has a price or it's hard to control, but they managed it really well. And I think Content ID was one of the best inventions they've done to help manage that massive and, responsibility of being a platform for anyone. And it's all, you said it's the platform because you create this platform and this was in the same way that like things like Facebook also existed. And it's interesting. We can bring the invisible conversation into this as well, because I find it so interesting after joining invisible and starting my own business within invisible, invisible does tech enabled services. And so most mm -hmm. people think, most people have no idea what that means. And usually it takes a while to explain what that means, tech-enabled services, because you have technology world, which is Google, Facebook, all these things. And Facebook, what I'm saying was they basically have this platform and they basically tried to automate everything out, all the humans out of that, out of those layers in between a user yeah. and their network. And they automated everything out. And so they that part of that automation became a problem once the 2016 election, 2018 election, 2020 election came around, because all of a sudden you need to actually bring that back in uh, because of, of the, uh, so the smart. Yeah. information. Yeah, no, it's, a, 
Yeah. I love this discussion. For me, the thing is, we're talking about billions of users, right? So like, I think that's the key number here because there's a limit to what humans can actually review. And I think YouTube in general has done a great job because one of the things I most admired while I worked at Google was the fact that they had something called community guidelines at YouTube. And I, I don't want to misrepresent, but I'm pretty sure they were amongst the first, if not the first, to build those for the platform, where they basically created a common ground criteria for every creator. And that includes everyone, like creators as we know them, and also brands and everyone who uploads content into the platform. They created these guidelines where they said, we do not want this type of content or this type of content. And so they were very upfront about it. And that's great because if you have the the, the ground rules laid out, then you're not betraying anyone if the content goes down. And so like they were very, very open and transparent about it. And I think after that, once they created those ground rules, the question that was begging to be answered is like, how are we going to monitor this? Like on a, on a regular basis, because although... The, the rules were clear. Now we needed like a second step, which is if someone violates these policies, like what happens? And and also I think they answered, well, I mean, content ID was part of that because it was like the copyright infringement way of managing this. And it was pretty automated because it was easy to automate on the technology side. We have a database submitted by content creators who own those rights. Let's say a musician, like they submit their songs and like their video content. And they say, this content is mine. And so the, you know, the content ID scans it and keeps it. And then if anything in the platform is ever uploaded matching like this content, then we know how to take it down. Or at least we know what to do with it, if you will, whether it is take it down or give the tracking or the monetization rights to the rightful owner of that content, etc. However, mm -hmm. like things that were a little bit more complex is what, do, how do we track like actual video content everywhere to make sure that it doesn't violate the policy of misinformation or other things that are more nuanced, right? And that's where the, the human component comes in because I think it is not always easy to for an automated system to detect the intentionality behind the content, right? However, like another thing that YouTube did, I, I'm not sure if you, I'm a big user of this, but I don't know if everyone uses it. There's a little flag in, in, in the videos when they are uploaded for people to report the content proactively. And so you can, it's, there's a little flag called report. And so if you click on that, the video automatically gets sent to a manual review for, for YouTube to be able to determine what to do with that content. And so that's like a way also to put it back to the user, if you will, so that they can help us identify content that they do not want to see. But as AI evolves, I'm pretty sure these things are going to be easier to automate. At the time I was working at YouTube, there, there was a fair amount of automated review and also like a fair amount of like manual review that required a human to have the criteria of whether the content should go down or not. But it's, they take it super seriously. And I think the community guidelines were like basically the, mo the smartest thing to do there, because in a way you're, you're making it very clear what you take and what you don't take in the platform for users to understand like or deter users from uploading content that might be harmful. This actually is, I'd like to go into a little bit of a tangent and related to knowledge management, because my role at Invisible is director of knowledge management. And then I'm also starting a smaller business unit related to knowledge management as a service. So where we, we're going to do the same thing that we've been doing for Invisible, but we're going to take it to external customers and do technology enabled uh, services. 
So and instead of just automating it, like we were talking about with either Facebook or YouTube and, and like running into that fact, we're going to bring human beings into the mix and augment them uh, using technology. Uh, and so knowledge management, I'd love to understand uh, on your teams, was there any discussions of knowledge management or was there any sort of role in the teams that you worked with that had knowledge management or have you heard of the term knowledge management? And if you have heard of it, what's your take on knowledge management? Within Can you expand on knowledge management? Sure. Because I want to know exactly what you mean by it before I answer. And 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 if you asked 15 different knowledge managers what they do, you get 25 different responses. All the more reason to ask for clarification. Yeah, exactly. no, I'll give you my I'll give you my 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 understanding of it. We have this thing called knowledge. And what mm -hmm. is knowledge? Very deep philosophical question. What is knowledge? We can go at it from a spiritual angle of kind of knowledge of who we are as human beings and existential. Mm -hmm. We'll, we'll leave that aside and, and just focus on knowledge as it, as it relates to business and knowledge work. So what's the difference between knowledge and information? Information is essentially you have a bookcase and you've, there are books that you've read on that bookcase and there's books that you haven't read. The books that you have read are knowledge. The books that you haven't read are information. And then you could take it one step further and say data. The data is like a number inside the book that you haven't read. That's just so like knowledge brings context to content. And, and knowledge management, what do you do when you're knowledge manager? So there's all these all this knowledge inside of your head, all the jobs that you've done over the years, those you've done a lot of dis different interdisciplinary thing. How much of that could you actually write down and say, and then if somebody else was going to do that same role, how much would they actually understand and how much of it is like outside the ability to get it written down and everything that's like implicit and explicit knowledge. And then, so what does a knowledge management function do at a company? So there are, there's the current state of the company. There's the future state of the company and there's the past state of the company. So we map the current state and we help do decision support to get to a better future. You know, there's a whole bunch of, you know, the leadership has different goals. And so they want to get to those. And we make sure that the, the, we do a mapping of the whole entire organization to support the future goals. Then there's another angle, which is the, there are different layers to the company as well. And so making sure the knowledge transfer is going in between those different layers and supporting the kind of free flowing of information and knowledge across different disciplines. And the reason why I'm interested in, in asking you, you about it, it's actually never been done very well at a lot of different companies. It's this weird function that sometimes works, sometimes doesn't. Consulting companies are usually better at it. Lawyers are really good at it. Among the tech companies, not very many tech companies have been very good at it. Amazon's a little bit better. But yeah, I'd be curious to, I know that Google does have a knowledge management. I actually talked to the guy who runs it and, and, and but, but I'd be curious to hear like what at the team level, like when you experience it, I'd love to understand yeah. what that was like. No, I get what you're saying now. I think all marketing roles and especially product marketing roles, which is mostly what I've done, have some form of knowledge management because we create Let's say when, whenever we support a product or if we lead a product, as I did, I launched like four products for Google. You have to somewhat gather like the knowledge that is helpful to users, like in a way that is understandable for users as well. And also internally within the company, like, in, you know, whether it is training new hires for your team, which I did, or whether it is just sharing information across different products within the company internally, like you need that knowledge. So Google has something called the Knowledge Hub, I believe, where they gather a lot of information that is external, right? Like we have, it's, a, it's an external resource. And they, there's a million of things, there's a million of things there, but like they have either uh, ebooks or digital publications that they've done. Because one of the things that Google has been extraordinary at is managing in terms of 
the internet as a search engine, which is how they started. They managed the zeitgeist in a way that is very compelling of like how the internet works. And I think they've been pretty much like thought leaders in the space since the very beginning. And in doing that, knowledge management has been a key uh, a key aspect of how they did it. So Knowledge Hub is one example. We also have, of course, we have a help centers and things like that for every product. I think the Knowledge Hub has been more effective, in my opinion, than help centers <laughs> in a lot of ways, because like some products, some products made by Google are complex. And I think it's hard for users to navigate them just by reading the help center alone. However, in general, I think it, it depends on the product. Like for YouTube, like YouTube was pretty pretty intuitive. Like I feel like creators had their own take of how they use the platform in terms of the content that they created, but everyone knew how to use the platform pretty much. I think with other products like Google ads, like it was a bit more complex because the, the product made a lot of money for Google and had many layers in terms of Google analytics and Google trends and other things that you can use to improve your ads and how to. So I think the health center for Google ads has always been not as easy to navigate, but yeah, knowledge especially in the era of AI, and this is where I guess I kick the ball back to you, there has to be some form of this, not just, as I said, to manage the zeitgeist, as I was saying with Google, because when search engines showed up in the space of internet, like we had Alta Vista, we had Bing and Google, and I feel like it was not just the search engines that were the movement right behind like how to search for content online and you know the google mission of organizing the world information and making it publicly available like they have honored that pretty much like in a solid way and i think there has to be somewhat some some form of that with ai as well where there is a mission statement that we all follow and what are we building ai for what is this technology meant to do for humanity and like how are we using ai and i'm sure as years progress in this like AI race, call it, or like AI, what a AI movement, like, I'm sure there will be voices, Google, or like any of the other fangs in terms of like, how we do this, and what is the mission, and that is 100% knowledge related, like, how do we learn from the creations, like machine learning models, or like the singular AIs that we build, or whatever, how do we learn, and how do we improve based on those learnings, both internally in those companies and externally facing the world. And I think, in, in, in even in the fang in the big techs and, and in startups as well that are working on AI, they all have their niches, right? Netflix entertainment, you have Google with uh, search engine and you also they're getting into many businesses now by acquisition, but I, I, whether it is hardware, YouTube or whatever, and then you have Meta and then I, I feel like there's so many different niches to, to develop AI that this knowledge management has to become more and more important to teach those industries how to do it, because there will be a lot of people. I'm, as I said, I, I'm, I'm an optimist, but I definitely think AI is here to stay. And whoever is not on the AI train will fall off the tracks. There, there's no, I, I can't see it any other way because AI will change the way we do things, whether we like it or not. And we just have to be there with a seat at the table to influence what that will look like. Yeah. And so what you said about information and Google organizing the information, it's a very similar thing to people who couldn't figure out how to find things on Google, but it's like that, but like a hundred X, the power that somebody has with generative AI is insane. Like the things that they can do, the things that I've been doing in the last four to five months, I, it's been a lifesaver in, in my job because I, 
I, I've, I've had two roles at Invisible, one director of knowledge management, the other one starting an internal business unit. Both of them are like complementary, but it was like, and I'm, I'm only one person right now. We're going to, we're going to hire more, but only one person for seven months, people would send me their information. They'd send me their knowledge to organize. And like this generative AI piece, like I would have quit like within a couple months, if <laughs> like it would have been literally impossible to do my job without generative AI. Now I've been supercharged and it's been an amazing experience for me because not only are we involved in that generative AI thing added visible, but we're, we're doing this thing with knowledge management and knowledge management, as you said, is just like such a powerful uh, thing. And it's so important. And what you said about Google specifically, how they, cause I was looking at it from their business. How did they do the, the knowledge management from their business? But the whole product that they had was a knowledge management product doing for organizing the world's information so that knowledge could be made more accessible. And so our, our actual, our mission at Cosmos is to organize the world's uh, knowledge, starting with companies' knowledge. And so it was really interesting that Google came around because before Google, it was Yahoo and Yahoo had taxonomies and ontology. I think it was ontology search or something like that. And then Google came in and figured out a whole new way to do search. And now, as you said, a lot of people are saying that generative AI is basically like a search engine. They've just, they've done a lossly compressed search engine. So every time that you put a prompt into it, it crawls the entire internet, which has been stored inside of the thing. It's yeah. definitely not a coincidence that Google has integrated Bard into the search engine. Like they are, they know that everyone knows that. So I feel like it's, it's only a matter of time until you're interacting. This is. I'm not speaking for Google anymore, but like I can anticipate that we will be talking to Bard like in a few years, if not sooner. So I feel like, yeah, a hundred percent. And I agree. That's why I mentioned Google and the mission, their mission, because it is so relevant now. If you think about, I don't know, they had such an ambitious vision of creating like a knowledge hub for humanity in the search engine, if you will, which is why they've been, they've been thriving for as long as they have, because it's such a useful thing, but it almost to a point where you don't need memory anymore because you have Google. And I, that's a very anthropological whole new thing, conversation to have, but it is true. Like you don't have to remember things because you can just Google it. And, and I think that's amazing. It's, it's a great, amazing, <laughs> not amazing for the human memory, but like amazing in the sense that it's a great product. Like it, it really is needed. And I think there's also a million other things, right? But I, I think there there is a different stage at which each one of the tech companies that we know are taking in AI. When it comes to Apple, for example, like in the way they build hardware, in the way they build their software, I'm sure there is a lot of AI that goes into these things already, and it will only get more and more expansive, like in terms of what they will do with it. Like product design, it's can you compete with ChatGPT or, <laughs> or mid journey in terms of designing the perfect computer? I don't know. I'm pretty sure. But, I'm, but, it, but this, here's the thing that I'm very passionate about. And even like with tech friends of mine, like having this heated discussions where we go into, is it art if it's just like an AI, a singular AI, like having an exhibit in, LAC, in LACMA? And I'm like, I don't know. It's, it's hard to tell because if you think about AI as a more advanced paintbrush, I feel I can get comfortable with an artist using AI to create like incredible works of art that I would definitely buy a ticket to go and see in an exhibit. But then if you think about what happens if a singular AI, let's say, let's call them like, I don't know, Spock. If Spock is the artist, would you go to an exhibit made by an AI? Would you buy a product created 100% by, by an AI? 
with art, I feel like I'm a little bit more, I, I, I'd say maybe, I don't know if the word is conservative, but I feel like I'm a little bit less inclined to think that I would be happy thinking of an AI artist as an artist, because I think there is a certain component of the human soul that goes into creating art, going to your question about context, right? Like the context, context is like the information or the data going through a human soul and becoming knowledge, right? To me, art is that. So if the soul component is not there, and who says it's not there, right? That's a whole new philosophical discussion that we can have some other time. But like, to me, it's not there if it's just a robot. However, like when it comes to product design or things that are more like functional, if you if if there if if a design were invented by an AI or a singular AI, I think I could get comfortable with it because I would like, you know, if you think about things like a fence for <laughs> a fence for a balcony, like if AI can do that more like safer than a human being, why not benefit from that and make sure that no one dies like from the fence being like imperfect imperfect but the, the the distinction i'm making i feel like i don't know maybe i'm sure like people hearing this will be like either outraged or not outraged by what i'm saying but there are certain things where i think ai could be very beneficial and why reject that it's great that we have a tool that can be like that can help us or empower us to do incredible work but i almost like and this is a conversation that i've had with a few people at invisible as well like amongst my tech friends what why don't don't call AI automation. Let's call it innovation because that's what it is. Automation is scary because the word automate brings associations like, oh, we're going to get people like fired and I'm going to lose my job to an AI. Automation is not the right word actually because AI help us, help, helps us build innovation. We learn how to do things in a different, more effective, more efficient way that is great. And let's use that. It's why prevent that from happening if it can revolutionize the world and maybe create more jobs or get people to be smarter and like work smarter and have more time to for leisure and like other things like that. But yeah, it is. <laughs> what do you think, Stuart? I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this because. Yeah. No, that was very interesting. And I do want to go, I know you said it for, save it for another time, but I want to go right to it of the, of the so art taking an idea, remixing an idea, remixing reality through the artist creates great art. And then it does will somebody be want to pay for that if it's totally AI generated, if an AI does art better than human beings? So there's that one piece, but then there's the functional side, the product marketing, the if the AI can build a better fence, if the AI can build a better highway, why not? That 100%. And it, and it, and it feels like I noticed there's a tendency in a lot of tech people, particularly in San Francisco, to be robotic because they recognize all the powers are, are the power is going to the robots. And so they want to be like blend in and pretend to be a robot a little bit and become robotic in their in the way that they're there. Uh, and and but it, I think that's the wrong way to go about it, because that's competing on a field that you there is no hope to compete with. So I think what we're going to end up and this is a huge part of what Invisible loves the whole culture of Invisible is that. In this process, as we move from the last 10 years of trying to automate humans out of existence, the robots are going to take most of the work. But instead of making humans less important, I think it's going to make humans more important, and particularly the soft skills. Because we were talking earlier about how all the problems go away, how or no, how a lot of the problems are going to be, we have large problems. Those problems are going to be able to be solved better, faster, and cheaper. And as those technical problems get solved, it's not like all the problems disappear. 
we'll have more problems because like all the plastics in the water, all the plastics in the water, if AI helps us to figure out how to get all the microplastics out of the water, then there's going to be the fact that the, all the, the seagulls get the, get their heads stuck in those little plastic things as well. And then we'll solve that problem. And so there'll be more problems. And as we give more and more to the robot, this basic human connection that feels like the only thing that's going to be left in business is the human to human connection because like data entry and when and you can already see this in a lot of business in general, like you can see it when, when somebody moves up to a management role or a leadership role, they spend way less time actually building software, building products, but more managing people. And, and yeah, you know, we're seeing exactly yeah. well, but I feel, well, a few things first, yeah. There is actually a robot. I think it's called Neuron or something by AMP Robotics that actually can fish recyclable items like out of wastelands and classify them so that we can recycle them and clean them and re recycle them. So that is already happening. You know what I'm saying? It can get, it's like a Wally -E type of <laughs> character mm -hmm. that goes. So these things, I think that those are no brainers, right? When, when it comes to, and here's where I make a very, to me, it's a very, clear, somewhat clear distinction, because when it comes to technique, building buildings or architects and how to structure buildings more like eff effectively or efficiently so that they don't crumble in an earthquake, like these things to me are an obvious like thing that that AI can help us build better. And this is technique. This is like improving, enhancing a technique that has been created by humans with an AI that was also created by humans to make it better, right? However, art is yeah. not just technique yeah, because yeah. if you think about art as perfection, you're thinking about it in a wrong way. Art is not perfection. Art is like imperfection, like beauty, sure, but beauty, imperfection is beauty, right? And so we're, the, the goal of art is expressing a human soul in whatever it is, a canvas, a poem. And so if you think about that, I don't think the technique matters as much because, and that's where I, I am like, quote unquote, conservative, because I feel like I don't want to see technique porn when I go to an exhibit. I, I Sorry, apologies for the word, but I want to see a human soul expressed on a canvas. And, and as a human, when I see that canvas, I feel identified because the emotions that canvas show evoke a certain human I don't know how to say it, compassion or whatever, like empathy of, oh, wow, he was so depressed and he painted that while he was depressed. I've been depressed. That's amazing. I am skeptic to think that could happen if the artist were a robot that I know does not have a soul, at least in the way I interpret soul. Well, But you see what I'm saying? Like the distinction between technique and art is very important because art is technique and also expression. Like the part that is missing if... A, AI is building it is the expression. Like the, the technique, I'm sure it can be better than any human. I'm sure like if you give a paintbrush to an AI and a paintbrush to a human, the AI will make something that is more perfectly, whatever perfection means, but it's not going to have a soul. And so that's where I'm like, to me, the line that I draw is when it comes to technique, let AI roam free. Let us, let them tell us how to do things. But when it comes to art, I don't go as far. Like I, I feel but for that reason. But I feel like there's a great business idea here, which is like, <laughs> a, like a, a Coca-Cola taste test, like a Coca-Cola Pepsi taste test. We need to set up an art taste test where it's a physical art gallery 
And that physical art gallery has art done by AI and art done by 100% by human beings and see whether people can contract. Tell the difference. Like whether they can see a soul in the art, that would be amazing. I would, to me, the, and this is like on the spot of the type of thing that I would love to discuss for hours on end with anyone. Like it's crazy that a, so to speak, soulless creation Let's think about singularity, right? Let's, what is the human soul? And does a singular AI have a soul? To me, maybe right now I'm leaning towards it doesn't have a soul. And if you think about that, it's crazy that something that doesn't have a soul brings us back as humans to the conversation of a soul. What is a soul? And is there a soul? What is that movie? The one that I forget the name. The, the, the movie that, that there was this movie that showed that when humans die, like their bodies lose like a certain amount of weight. Mm. I forget the number exactly of the weight, but like they lose that weight. And someone in the movie said that's the soul, like that goes from the body, basically. I want to remember the name now, but but all, all of this to say, is there a soul or not? And that something soulless as a robot or in, in the traditional sense of what we understand as soul can bring us back to this conversation as humanity of, wow, is there a soul? Is there a spiritual world? Is there a spirit in humans? Is there a spirit in robots? I find that fascinating. I'm very fascinated. And I've actually, this has been a question for the past two weeks for me as I've been deeper, diving deeper into Stephen Wolfram. Are you familiar with Stephen Wolfram from the Wolfram Institute? Very interesting, extremely intelligent. I once had him on this podcast a few years back and I'm trying to do another one with him because he just- 21 gave- grams. Sorry, that's the movie. <laughs> that's the name of the movie too and the, I think the- so yeah 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 I think it's 21 grams yeah so Stephen Wolfram did an amazing talk that they released two two Sundays ago talking about his new theory of computational thinking and how basically and he's got a whole physics he's basically gone back and shown all the physics to how the whole entire universe not the physical universe but our universe of ideas is computational and so that there's a whole computational space that we think in and ai is now allowing us to map that computational space and allow us to basically build programs that can go and do more complex things that we can understand so ai is this black box and so it gets me thinking about human intelligence most of the materialists would say that human beings are not there is no soul there is no spirit but then but i believe that those people are wrong and that there is spirit, there is soul, but everything that we can cognize, that we can model, form, that's all computational. And that who we we are, even this person that we think we are, that feels like this discrete entity that's stuck inside this body, that itself is also computational. But spirit and soul are like even further behind that. Going back to context, that's even more of the context behind it. And so I think AI, anything that can be witnessed, anything that can be cognized, anything that can be understood or put into a model, that's all up for grabs in terms of AI. But but who knows? I think that'll be. And then the question of whether this thing actually has a, a sentience. I definitely don't think it's sentient right now, but it could be sentient in the future. And, but, but like that whole question of then, even if it is sentient, even if it is intelligent, does it have a soul? Is it alive? And that's that, I think that'll be a while until we have to grapple with that question, but it can definitely simulate intelligence better. Not that big of a while. I think that the reason why that's the one, I think that's the one frontier that will take the longest only because it has the potential to be, yeah, it's, it's like where the nuclear 
situation. Mm -hmm. It's no coincidence that Oppenheimer was launched like now because like it, it literally became this thing where this movie was launched about the atomic bomb. And we were like, we're in this brink of the situation of AI, like becoming like a nuclear energy type of discovery where it's okay, what do we do with this nuclear energy? Do we create, do we use it to solve the climate crisis or do we use it to create a bomb? It's, and so it, it, it's a crazy thing. This is how Hollywood really understands the zeitgeist and like launches movies accordingly. But it is incredible that we're at this brink of, I was brought up Catholic and I always grapple with this, like in, in the sense of what we're discussing now, if you think about the Bible and, and Eden or the, the situation of Adam and Eve and like the serpent and the apple and what, like what happened there is so relevant now because God created men and women to create a being that could actually choose something different to what they were built to do. Like plants don't have that option. Animals don't have that option. They always choose what is good for them, what is good for their nature, what is natural to them. Whereas human beings have this terrible choice of, or terrible and phenomenal as well, of choosing freely, like between evil and good and whatever evil means, like the absence of good or what, however you want to put it. But like, we are now in this situation of creating a singular thing, like a singular call it being I, I avoided the word being on purpose there but like singular artifact robot that can that could choose something different if we make it really singular than what it was built to do so we are in mm -hmm. quote-unquote god in this oh, yeah. situation oh, yeah, isn't yeah, that yeah. The most yeah, ironic yeah. thing yeah. you can think of because we all know what we did <laughs> when we had an alternative choice <laughs> so what will these robots do but, and it's not only that story from the Bible, but there's seven other stories from the Bible where like the, the Tower of Babel, we got the Tower of Babel. Uh, yeah, there's talk about the, the climate change and the flood. We got the flood going on. And but yeah, it's and that that's just in generative AI. And the far, far potentially more scary thing that's headed down the pipeline is the actually getting involved with the biology itself and changing the biology and, and doing okay. all sorts of those things. And that's, that's playing around with God's power too. Um, yeah, we're in a, we're in a very uh, fertile place in terms of uh, uh, why philosophy is so important. And this is why I, I think you'll, the invisible is so such an interesting company uh, is because uh, it's very rare do I get to talk philosophy for at, at Invisible all the time? And it's all the time. Like last Friday, we had this discussion. We've got a Zohar. Zohar is running another business unit. Like I, I've got my business unit, Cosmos. Zohar has, is running his business, which is Lightning, and they do culture as a service. And so they've got a podcast every Friday. And so I, I went on their podcast where it's him. He studied academic level philosophy for 12 years. And he found other people who are also philosophers and who are like really deconstructed and constructed their whole consciousness over and over again through these long academic periods. And we were talking about like thinking and, and Heidegger and, and how it applies to AI. And I don't actually, maybe this is like I could turn it back to you for the last five minutes or so is like at Google, I actually do, do know, I remember that Google did a lot of meetings and meetups and within Invisible to talk philosophy and do book clubs. That, was that a big part of Google as well? Yeah, of course we had that between employees. You mean like we were, yeah, we were, we would do book clubs and it's always in, super interesting because I think community building was something they were very strong at. And most tech companies have that too. If you work with incredibly smart people and you learn from them every day, you definitely want to learn from them in like 
other forums that don't have to do with like the products you're building, but just in general, it's healthy as long as you're respectful and you understand that like people come from different places and have different ideologies and different interests and things like it can be a, a, a thing, a very good team building exercise to do these things. And I was a big fan of them. I book clubs are, I mean, I'm such a nerd. <laughs> I've always been, and I feel like I will always be a nerd at heart. And I, that's why I love philosophy and having these conversations because they're so relevant now. I feel like it's, and also this brings me back to why I think it's important to have other people that are also curious in this particular way, working in AI, because it's like politics. This is, this is very much like a political discussion as well as a humanitarian, human, humanity discussion in general, like of values and things, because you want to have people with, I'd say, transparent and healthy values, whether it, they can be different, but like values that are in favor of humanity seated at the table of what AI should do for humanity. And so this is why I invite everyone in the audience, like who knows technology and also the people who are interested or have good hearts, like to get a seat at this table, because the future of humanity is being, is being discussed in the tables where AI is being discussed. And I hope we get the right people on those tables. At least I hope that we do better than what we have done in politics <laughs> in terms of getting the right people to sit at the table. So I feel like that's like where I stand in terms of I'd much rather be breeding horses in Argentina. I think that with my expertise of, of, of technology and things like I think people who have good hearts are needed at these tables. I hope we get them. But it's all remote now, so you can do both. <laughs> the Wi-Fi in Patagonia might be a bit tricky, but... <laughs> Not for long, but yeah, for probably. now it is. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Thank you so much for coming on the show. And how can people find out more about you and what you're working on? I'm, my, my name is Soledad D'Agostino. Soledad Agostino is my LinkedIn. And also, obviously, I'm not very public on social media, to be very frank. I have my Instagram profile, but not much more than that. But yeah, I don't know. I think LinkedIn is always, I, I'm very responsive in LinkedIn. And so if people find me there, they will find me eventually. Well. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Stuart Alsop I. Also, don't forget to subscribe on Spotify or iTunes for every weekly episode that I publish on Monday mornings. Hope you have a great day.